Hi everyone, uh, so I'm on my lunch break, dr drinking some tea, having some lunch. Uh, I thought I might as well, you know, two birds with one stone and talk about uh, a good man's hard to find, Flannery O'Connor. Okay, let's just say there's this person, like the grandmother, who's this archetype, and she's saying a whole bunch of stuff that's just so unchristian, right? And God wants to send somebody to test her, right? Uh, that's the misfit. So I see the story as sort of a Job story, even though Job, a good man, successful family, good God-fearing man, the grandmother, she's not such a good person. And she's a bully. She is hitting people. You know, her brother, ba her son, Bailey. Uh, she's controlling. She says there's no good people in the world. And as a Christian, you don't think that. And Flannery O'Connor is Catholic. So the misfit brings her to faith in a way. Because what is Flannery O'Connor saying here? That people will not do something unless there's a threat of violence, unless there's a gun pointed to your head, right? Unless there's the idea of hell to keep you on the straight and narrow, will you do the right thing? Will you stop at the stoplight if you knew there were no cops? Would you obey the speed limit if you knew there was no way, there's just no cops on the road with their speed guns, right? So what keeps people moral? What keeps people good, right? Do we need evil? Do we need people like the misfit to remind us of our morality and our, and our values? Hopefully I can go through this and make, a, you know, make sense of the, the magic that Flannery O'Connor creates here. Um, and these are the things I'm going to be picking up on. Uh, the humor, which is oftentimes dark. The irony, foreshadowing. O'Connor's critique of class and race. And this idea of Southern blood, which, of course, we do still have the talk of, you know, um, theme. The use of vernacular in the dialogue. Religion. So if you're not comfortable or know a lot about uh, Christianity and Jesus, maybe I can help you. Um, the use of illusions, paradox, and fate. Um, and you never know, I'll probably, and also go, also talk about archetypes. So there's a lot going on in the story. So hang on tight. Hopefully this will uh, help you. All right, so the grandmother is an archetype. We do not have a name for her. If she did have a name, we would feel worse and we would feel really bad that she cried but she's a type so it's like if we see someone slip and fall it might be funny but if it's your grandmother and you know grandmother sally and you see her fall it's not funny okay so the grandmother like the misfit are archetypes right they represent the universal Right. And 
notice she has control throughout the entire story. She's seizing at every chance. She didn't want to go to Florida. So there's already this negation. She talks about her connections, which talks about social class. You know, not family, connections, right? In the North, up here in Jersey, we don't say, I want to meet my connections, right? We say, I'm going to go meet my family, right? Um, we have humor throughout the story, uh, rattling the newspaper at Bailey's bald head, and, and, you know, when she says, the misfit is a loose, and so she's using the vernacular, so the Thonnie O'Connor does a phenomenal job of having the characters be individuals and using diction, syntax, in a way that helps us understand the character, right? And then, of course, the irony that I would never take my children in any direction with a criminal like that, a loose in it, okay? They're, you know, a loose, she used it a second time. And then she says, I couldn't answer to my conscience if I did, all right? That will be the ultimate test, answering to her conscience, all right? Uh, she will have to answer that conscience. And Flannery O'Connor here gives us a test, uh, almost like from the book of Job, where someone has to be tested, and if their faith is tested, all right? And this is, of course, foreshadowing. If you're a good reader and you're reading this, you should know they're going to meet the misfit. It's like Chekhov's gun. Why would you mention it if you're not going to use it? If there's a gun in a room, that gun's going to be used. If not, the writer's a poor writer. Okay, let me... Uh, so we have humor with the woman. The mother It was as innocent as a cabbage and has a green headkerchief and, you know, like rabbit's ears. This is all to characterize the mother as being, you know, totally powerless. She absolutely has, she's just like a, a she's just a, like a prop, all right, um, and has no control. It's the grandmother, the matriarch, that has all the power and will cause the downfall and the destruction of this family, right? Uh, she wants her kids to see the different parts of the world. Paris, India, China. No, East Tennessee and be broad. Like, be broad-minded. That's funny. You know, they've never been to East Tennessee. Well, really, that's what... It's, it's, it's just funny, right? Flannery O'Connor also uses the tropes of Southern names. So if you were to create, like, a name for... A stereotypical name like Billy Bob or... You know, so it's like June Star. These are all funny names that resonate. Like John Wesley Harding, a famous, you know. Uh, so we have like John Wesley and June Star and these different these different names, right? And the kids are also a bit of archetypes, constantly fighting. They're spoiled brats. They don't listen. And John Wesley has like, well, what would you do if you, uh, would, if, if you caught the misfit? And he says, I'd smack his face. Oh, really, John Wesley? He's going to shoot you in the head. All right. We don't know that yet, but that's, that's where Flannery O'Connor has the irony. She knows the ending. 
So she's going, she's writing things for us to go back and say, oh, that was good. Oh, that was good. This is where the writer is the artist, right? And then, of course, June Stark says, oh, my hair is naturally curly, you know. Um, notice the irony the, on the first page. It's on the first page. The grandmother was the first one in the car ready to go. She's, you know, she didn't want to go, but she's the first one to go. She has this big suitcase. It's black, right? That's interesting. That black uh, will come up again. Uh, like the black hearse at the end, the funeral car. And it looked like the head of a hippopotamus. This thing is huge, right? And she's sitting in the back seat with this huge suitcase, dressed like a southern belle. And the two kids are on either side. Perhaps you've taken a trip where you're squeezed in the back, and it's so uncomfortable, right? And because I'm outside, you hear a, uh, a flock of geese heading south because it's getting cold now. Okay. And the irony, of course, is that the stupid cat comes because she didn't want the cat to go up against one of the gas burners and asphyxiate himself. The irony is, of course, it's the cat. He's the only one that survives, right? So the cat is pivotal to the plot because it's the cat that will see that jumps up onto uh, onto the uh, onto Bailey's shoulder, causing the accident. And of course, the cat will find a new family as the cat rubs up against the leg of uh, the misfit. All right, but I'm jumping ahead. Let's. The irony, of course, is that it would be interesting to see how many miles you're looking at the odometer, right? And you know, if you take trips, oftentimes I do this. I said it, right? Um, but the irony is they'll never get back. Right, um, and of course, if I if I didn't mention this before, she took the cat. It's a plat. It's a plot device, and it's ironic because it's the cat who survives, and the cat should not have been this uh, pity sing. The cat should not have been on the trip, and it's the cat that causes the accident. Well, it's really the grandmother who upsets the cat. It's like a series of uh, unfortunate incidents. Right? Um, Funny O'Connor goes to a great length of a paragraph describing of description the old lady because she's dressed as a typical southern belle with cotton gloves and a blue straw sailor hat and white violets because she says if i die if i'm dead on the highway i want to know this was a lady now well, of course that's what's going to come she's going to be dead on the highway whether or not people will think she's a lady or not, well, we can, we can debate that. But she's the picture of the Old South. She said it's going to be a good day. Well, that's ironic. It's not going to be a good day. She's mentioning all these things as they pass because they're important to her. Stone Mountain, uh, Blue Granite, the Ray Clay Banks. If you've driven through Georgia, you know the terrain. And, you know, there's, it does not look like Jersey. It does not look like New York. Um, and she just loves the scenery because she's connected to the land, right? But the kids could care less about the landscape, and they're just reading their comic magazines, and the mother's asleep. And John Wesley doesn't even want, they want to speed through Georgia because I don't want to look at it. And John Wesley says Tennessee is, is just hillbilly uh, dumping country, and Georgia's a lousy state. So the, the, the grandchildren are disrespecting what the grandmother respects so much about their native state, 
But here's the thing. As soon as she says something like that's, that seems to be nice, she, Flannery O'Connor reminds us that the South is connected to slavery, and she uses the N-word, and there's a kid by a shack who she calls a pickaninny, which is not a nice word whatsoever, and not wearing any pants. And the grandmother says, well, he probably didn't have any pants, right? Little N-words in, this, in the country don't have things like we do, right? And then she says, if I could paint a picture, I'd paint that picture. Really, of all things she'd paint, she'd paint a picture of a naked, you know, Negro boy, right? Think about how she's so tied to that old South. And so if you're attentive in your reading and they pass a cotton field with five or six graves, that's foreshadowing, guys. Um, there's going to be five or six graves. Um, the sixth grave, of course, is the baby, right? Um, and look at the graveyard, the grandmother said, pointing. That was the old family burying ground. Okay, so there is going to be a new family burying ground. It's not going to be here. It's going to be in the place where the grandmother has directed Bailey to go. And, of course, a famous allusion to Gone with the Wind, Margaret Mitchell's revisionist history. Uh, great movie, but really bad when it comes to depicting um, happy slaves and a way of life that the South still wants to go back to and cling to. But it's just impossible because you're living in the past, right? Um, of course, the kids are throwing things out the window. They're slapping each other over the grandmother. That's just, that's just humor. It's funny. And we've probably seen that brother or sister fighting in the back seat. And then the father driving, shouting, you know, shut up, shut up, shut up. And then she tells them a story about Edgar Atkins Tea Garden from Jasper and a watermelon and a N-word boy ate it because it said eat on it. And it's funny. And June Star said, I would never marry a man that just brought me a watermelon on Saturday. All right, she has higher hopes than just a watermelon. Again, that's funny. Then we come to a way station, a bit of a purgatory on their way to hell. And we have really religious symbols happening here. The tower, red Sammy butts, and we have a monkey chained to a china berry tree, and he springs back into the tree as soon as he saw the children jump out of the car. All right, so there's not an easy answer to these things. All right, uh, we could talk maybe about Darwin descended from monkeys the tree of knowledge is now like this china berry tree chained to it so you know is the south chained i mean so there's a lot going on here that would need a whole other lecture and i would need to do a whole more a lot more thinking um but it's definitely here for a reason um and it's a bit of like it relieves the tension and it it gives the plot, it gives Flannery O'Connor a reason for her to talk to Red Sammy Butts, right? Um, he, his name Red, the word Red comes up a lot in the story for a reason. We got to think of the devil. And she listens to this, you know, uh, there's his wife is tall, burnt brown woman. All right, again, flames, burnt, fire, right? 
And oftentimes we see towers as being symbols of evil. If you think of like uh, the two towers in um, the Lord of the Rings and Sauron. And so the tower as a, as a symbol seems to be a warning of something. All right. And of course, it gives the grandmother a reason to talk to Red Sammy about the misfit. And of course, she wants to dance, and Bailey just glares at her. And so that, that, that concludes page two. So let's get to page three. Red, Red Sam's wife says, Wouldn't, Would you like to be my little girl? I certainly would. I wouldn't live in a broken down place like this for a million bucks. Again, June Star is a, June Star is a spoiled brat, and she will not change even when facing death. She'll still, she's still a spoiled brat. And the grandmother hisses. Well, what hisses? A snake. All right, so that verb is there for a reason. Aren't you ashamed? No, she's not ashamed at all. This, this girl is not ashamed. All right. And then she says, these days you don't know how to trust, Red Sammy says. Ain't that the truth? And the grandmother says, people certainly are not nice like they used to be. All right. And then he says about two fellas coming in and they, they robbed me. And then... The grandmother says, it isn't a soul in this green world of gods you can trust. And I don't count nobody out of that. Does that include herself? We have to wonder. Not nobody, she repeated, looking at Red Sammy. And then, of course, did you read about that criminal, the misfit that escaped? Asked the grandmother. So as soon as she says that, she conjures up, she brings up the misfit. All right. So she'll come to regret saying this. It's as if when she says that, She'll make, she'll, she'll make the misfit arrive to test her, to test her faith. Um, because maybe it takes the barrel of a gun to keep people Christian, to keep people moral, to keep people faithful, right? That you need, you need, well, now this is Flannery O'Connor's point, okay? Because she is Catholic, right? Um, which is, which is, you know, you don't get too many Southern Catholics. Uh, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, yeah. But in the South, not so many. But Flannery O'Connor is unique in that with her Catholicism. And then Red Sammy says, a good man's hard to find, and that's where we get the title. And is it ironic? Is a good man hard to find? Or how does one stay a good man, right? Do you need the threat of a police car? Do you need, do you need the threat of violence or hell to stay good, right? And of course, you know, everything's getting terrible. It's like the South, you know, everything's bad. And we, we say this all the time. It used to be good, now it's bad. And they discuss times and she uses Europe as a scapegoat. And of course the monkey is busy catching fleas and biting each one carefully between his teeth. I see here that the, the, the monkey is sort of being a little bit of a, a mini version of the misfit where he's like biting each one between his teeth as if it were a delicacy um, because what he's doing to the fleas the misfit will be doing um, we see outside of tombsboro okay as a good reader when you see that all right the word tomb is there it's foreshadowing and then she sees she remembers this old plantation with six white columns why not? Why not five? Why not six? Well, there's six people in the car, right? And again, this is all intentional. This is not accidental. 
and there's this Old South versus New South, and she's still obsessed with the Old South. And she, her nostalgia for this way of living makes her force the kids to force the, the father to take this side road on this dirt road to see this secret house with a secret panel. And of course, she's responsible, right? And she says, it's not, it's not far. It wouldn't take over 20 minutes yet. That's irony, right? It's, they're going to be dead. And he tries to resist the Bailey, but he can't. And the grandmother uses the kids as her minions to get what she wants. And then she says, it'll be very educational for them. Really? They're going to die. And then said, okay, we'll do this, Bailey says, this one and only time. Well, that's true. This is their last and only time, right? And then she thinks of the beautiful glass and the candle lamp in the hall and the way the Old South used to be with these beautiful plantations that were kept alive due to slave labor, right? And then they're on this dirt road, and it's very, very, very dangerous. And, of course, this is all foreshadowing. Sharp curves on a dangerous embankment. And then there's a red depression with dust-covered trees looking down on them. This is foreshadowing. The trees are going to be looking down on them dead, all right, soon dead. Okay, on the fourth page, um, she has this moment of insight, right? This horrible thought came to her, right? Not necessarily an epiphany, but it could be an epiphany. Uh, and it was so embarrassing that she turned red, there's that word, in the face, her eyes dilated, and then she upsets her suitcase, and the newspaper top had over the basket, and then it's not, and then Pity Singh, so jumps on Bailey's shoulder. So her reaction, her memory, like, oh my God, I'm in the wrong state, right? Because her memory is faulty. And the cat causes the accident. And then they're thrown into the gulch. The car turns over. And then Bailey is in the driver's seat. The cat is clinging to his, is clinging to his, is clinging to him, uh, then clinging like a caterpillar, and then he, he throws it against a tree, right? Which is kind of funny, but abuse of animals, I guess, is not funny. Uh, and then the kids are, of course, excited. We've had an accident. We've had an accident. And then June Star, but nobody's killed, June Star said with disappointment. All right, that's funny, but that's also foreshadowing because eventually they're all going to be killed. Right, And then, of course, the humor continues. I believe I have injured an organ, right? Well, what organ, right? What organ? And it's, is it your heart? Is it your mind? Pretty soon it's going to be your whole body, right? And then Bailey has a yellow sport shirt with blue parrots on it. That's going to be significant. That detail of clothing is important. It could be monkeys, it could be bananas, parrots, parrot, other people's words and sounds. So Bailey doesn't have his own mind, all right? So again, characterization. So the clothes people wear help characterize a person's personality. 
He does not have any say about this trip. The grandmother is the one in charge. It's the grandmother who kills everybody. Not on purpose, but through her own carelessness and need for control. She won't even, she won't even recognize Bailey's shirt when one of the criminals takes it out. Right. That's how that's how unobservant she is about the current about the present because she's so consumed about the past. They see this car distant coming coming up and the grandmother waves both hands dramatically to attract their attention. That's a bad idea. This is the misfit. Right? So so this car comes down. There's a black boy in black trousers and a red sweatshirt and a silver stallion. Again, all very symbolic. Neither of them spoke, and the car is a black hearse, right? As if, you know, you're driving dead people. A hearse is a car that drives uh, to the funeral. And, of course, you save the last important detail. He was holding a gun, a black hat, again, black hats, criminals, right? You know, that's, that's, a, that's a famous, you know white men wear white, black, you know, bad people wear black. I mean, unfortunately, color symbolism is part of our racist upbringing and the way we view things, like Darth Vader's in black. Um, why? Well, that's just Western culture. And unfortunately, I believe, you know, it's tied to racism. Um, but the two boys also had guns. Again, Chekhov's gun. You don't mention the guns unless they're going to be used, all right? And then she recognizes, I says, I've seen this face, like I've known him all my life. Maybe she has known this person all her life in the form of Satan, in the form of evil. But she says, John, well, what do you got that gun for? And this says, what are you going to do with that gun? Well, it's ironic, right? Um, and notice the misfit, this archetype, who is a stand-in for the devil, um, as maybe justice in sort of like a, an earthly realm. And he's a gentleman. So the devil oftentimes in literature is represented as a gentleman in movies. And, you know, if we listen to the Rolling Stones' Sympathy for the Devil, you know, it's like oftentimes he is seen still as evil, but in a gentleman form. Especially that Al Pacino movie. I forget that what it was called, but he was, you know, this gentleman. Even in that new show, Lucifer, he seems to be, um, it's good, but not that good, and it loses steam. But it's, the devil's always portrayed um, as some sort of, like, gentleman uh, character, even though he's evil, all right? Um, there's this line of Woods Gate, the large open mouth, all right? This mouth, the dark open mouth is going to swallow symbolically the family and then she says you're the misfit i recognized you at once that's a big mistake if you recognize a criminal that escaped they can't leave witnesses behind to tell the police they're all going to have to be shot all right and she's Flannery o'connor's great use of the vernacular recognized me and, you know, once it, and so he uses, she uses the vernacular quite effectively uh, with the misfit. And even the misfit, the, the old lady began to cry, and the misfit reddened. There we have that word red. Like we can count how many times the word red is mentioned in the story. 
And then he says, lady, sometimes a man says things he don't mean. And I don't reckon, again, a southern way of saying, I know I don't, you know, we don't really say reckon up here in the north, uh, to talk you that away, right? But this guy's a gentleman. And then she says, you wouldn't shoot a lady, would you? Like, okay, are you a lady? And then the misfit pointed the toe of his shoe on the ground and made a little hole. Okay, he's digging a grave and covering up the grave, foreshadowing. Flannery O'Connor does that on purpose, right? If you're attentive and you're looking at stories deeply, look for these, look for these things. And then she says, I know you're a good man. You don't have common blood. Again, what is this with this common blood kind of thing? Again, this is a, a Southern thing. Um, talk about bloodlines and heredity and, you know, upper class and, you know, why should it matter what kind of blood you have? It's not blood, you know. But she is of this mentality. And you must come from nice people. Does she really believe that? Or is she just trying to save her own ass? Is she trying to, you know, save herself? And notice, she mostly wants to save herself. She's not really pleading for her family. She might cry out for Bailey, but really she's in it for herself. And then, of course, he shows his strong white teeth. It shows that he's a carnivore. We have another southern name, you know, Bobby Lee. And there ain't a cloud in the sky, but no sun either, right? There's no sun. There's no rescue for you, grandmother. Um, so let's take a look at the next page. So on the next page, he says, um, you shouldn't call yourself the misfit. I know you're a good man. I can just look at you and tell, really? She just said that there was not a good man. And I can just look at you and tell? And then Bailey's like, you know, she's this hypocrite. And then, of course, Bailey's always telling everyone to shut up. Let me handle this. It's irony and humor. He can't handle anything. Um, I appreciate that, lady. Vernacular. All right? Um, and then he, he says, would you mind stepping back into the woods there with them? He's this gentleman again. His eyes were as blue and as intense as the parrots. Again, mentioning the parrots in his shirt. Right? And then they reach the dark edge. I'll be back in a minute, Mama. Wait on me, Bailey says. Well, that's irony. It's all verbal irony, right? We know he's not going to be back. Or we don't know yet, but we should know if we're reading carefully. And then she says again, you're not a bit common, misfit. Again, showing class. Like, you know... Uh, like like white trash or trailer trash, this idea of, of like, you know, your blood is who you are, this kind of caste system that was in the South, in the North too, but, but you know, we don't really use these words in the North. And he says, no, I'm not a good man, but I'm not the worst neither. And he has this black hat, and he's a gentleman saying, I'm sorry about wearing this, sh I, I don't have a shirt on before you ladies. Why does he care? He's going to shoot them, but... I'm still going to be a gentleman, right? Um, and we borrowed these from some folks we met. Okay, some folks we met, is that understatement for folks we killed and used their clothes, right? Maybe Bailey has an extra suitcase, an extra shirt. Well, that's funny, right? Because he's going to be wearing Bailey's shirt. Um, and he says towards the end of that page, yep, somebody's always after you. Think about it if that's true. Um, yep, somebody's always after you. It doesn't matter, you know. Uh, we're all born sinners. And and then, of course, the mother, the grandmother is like, okay, let me use religion 
to persuade him to save my life. Do you pray? And he says, nom, not nope, not no, nom. And then there's a pistol shot. So we have the first two dead, all right? And then we hear a wind move through the uh, tops of the trees. I see that as Bailey's soul. And she hears like the release of Bailey's soul through the wind. Right? I could be making that up, but I don't think so. And then he says, I was a gospel singer. So here, the misfit had belonged to the church. And if we see him as the fallen angel of Lucifer, who was one of God's, you know, if you read Paradise Lost and etc., we know that Lucifer was God's right-hand man. And when God created Adam and Eve, he was jealous. And then he takes his angels, his, his entourage, to earth saying, I would rather, you know, I'd rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. And Lucifer was jealous of God's new creation, Adam. Um, and again, this is all this is all archetypal criticism, and you know, you know, looking at looking at religion as literature. And of course, sorry about that. Um, and the grandmother says, "Pray, pray." You know, I was buried alive, and he looked up. Right, so he was like he was imprisoned, and it's just he's just going. You know, they had the papers on me. They said I killed my daddy, which could be like killing the father, killing the god, the godhead but I know I didn't do it. And it really doesn't matter what I did because if you believe in Christianity and original sin, we're all sinners. So it doesn't really matter because we're all sinners. And I don't want any help. I'm doing all right by myself. And a shirt comes flying and she, the grandmother couldn't name what the shirt reminded her of. Really? You can't remember the parrot shirt? Uh, and she says, crime doesn't matter. And we're all sinners because sooner or later they're going to get, they're, they're going to forget what was done and just be punished for it, right? And then, of course, at the end, he says, well, let's just step off yonder. So he's still, he's still using humor. He's still a gentleman. Um, and all her persuasion of trying to, you know, bring him to Jesus is not going to work. You know, let's, it's, it's like trying to persuade the devil to go back to heaven. All right, and when we get to the final page, you should definitely know what's coming by now. You know, you know they're all going to die, right? Um, I don't want to hold hands with him, June Star. He reminds me of a pig, all right? She's still a brat, right? You, you've heard the pistol shots, and already you're, like, offending the very people. She's not even trying to plead to, to be let go. Alone with the misfit, the, the, the grandmother found that she had lost her voice. This is the first time she's probably ever lost her voice, right? Because she's always a chatterbox. There was not a cloud in the sky, nor any sun, all right? Does this mean there was no God to rescue her? There was nothing around her but woods, right? And then she says, Jesus, Jesus. And then she says it in a way as if it might be cursing, right? So notice how the juxtaposition of Jesus and cursing is irony. Is this taking the Lord's name in vain? It's like saying, you know, like, Jesus, Jesus, it's not like Jesus, it's not like call for help, it's, it's, like, it's, like a, it's like a curse. And then I see that's why I sign myself when the misfit's talking about Jesus and he shouldn't have done it, he threw nature off balance, people don't rise from the dead, and this is just against nature. And We could have a really nice conversation about um, 
what this all means, but this is already too long. That's why I sign myself now. Sign, I see here is two meanings, signing like a signature and also signing like the sign of the cross. Uh, I sign myself, so I don't, need, I don't need to make the sign of the cross. I can make my own sign, right? I can control my own life because I'm doing okay for myself. And then we have, you know, another person dead, a pistol report, and then he says, does it seem right to you, lady, that one is punished a heap and one not punished at all? We say that all together. We say that all the time. Why is, why is this one in jail and, you know, for marijuana and Brock Turner is not? You know, so why is one, why is one punished and another? It doesn't seem fair to me, right? And then she still says, you got good blood, you know, you don't, not to shoot a lady. I'll give you money, all I've got. You know, she cares for herself. That's all she cares about. And then he says, they never gave a body, uh, there never was a body that gave an undertaker a tip. All right, that's humor, because a dead body is never going to tip an undertaker. Why? Because they're dead. All right, again, foreshadowing. Two more pistol reports. All right, so now there's three dead, right? So that's what, five. So it, it, it just leaves the grandmother to make six. And then Jesus was the only one that ever raised from the dead. He threw everything off balance. And I see here as a doubting Thomas, like, if I was there and I saw it, I would believe it. But I wasn't, so I'm not really sure. And then she cries out, you're one of my babies, you're one of my own children. Like, we're all brothers and sisters, which is a very Christian message. But does she really believe that? Or is she just saying this because she doesn't want to be executed, right? And she touches him on the shoulder. The misfit sprang back as if a snake had bitten him. Wait a second. Isn't the misfit the snake devil image? Right? And then she shoots her three times through the chest. Right? Not once. Not twice. Why three? Three is the trinity. Three, you know, in rhetoric is called apesius. And it's, I see this is very symbolic. And then he takes off his glasses to clean them as if for clarity. All right? It's like piggy. Or um, what was his name in Lord of the Flies? Uh, his spectacles, always cleaning them, or allied man. Spectacles in literature always means about clarity, you know, trying to, you know, clean things off that are muddy and dirty, right? And then this is very interesting. I see redemption for the grandmother because she's sitting in a puddle of blood with her legs crossed, right? Like maybe like the cross of Jesus um, under her under like a child because in order to get to heaven you need to be, have the mind and faith of a child um, and her face is smiling up in the cloudless sky so I see that as redemption and then the misfit here still with these red, red rimmed and pale like the pale rider of death from uh, Revelation and take her off and throw her uh, where you thrown the others and he picks up the cat that was rubbing against the legs. So the cat doesn't really care about good and evil or about the grandmother. He just, you know, wants a new caretaker, right? Darn cat, right? And the the punchline at the end, and the, really the big takeaway in the theme, is she would have been a good woman if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. Every minute of her life. So there, this, this is a paradox, right? In order to be good, do you need someone with a gun to keep you on the straight and narrow? 
can people have morality and be good without the threat of violence? Can you submit your assignments to school without, you know, worrying about getting a zero? Because I know if I put a zero in, work gets done. If I just say, well, get it in whenever, just write an essay because it's good for you, will students actually do an essay? Probably not. So why does it need to be the threat of a grade to do it, right? And then Bobby Lee says, ah, this is some fun. And then the misfit knows, shut up. This is no real pleasure in life. He knows. He knows. Um, and it's almost like his lot in life. Um, and that's why one should have sympathy for the devil because the devil is doing, you know, if you look at the book of Job, what God wants him to do as far as testing the faith and bringing people who are misguided to, to the truth. Um, and I do see redemption there for the grandmother. Unfortunately, so many have to die, right? If you know, this, if you know Pulp Fiction and the, and the famous scene with Samuel L. Jackson, and he, he's there with the gun, and he says, and you shall know the name of the Lord when I then, boom, 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 and then he shoots, right? Samuel L. Jackson is a bit of a misfit there, right? And that's why this story reminds me so much of uh, a Terrence, uh, Tarantino movie. Um, this was long. I hope you enjoyed it. I uh, hope you got something out of it. When you read these stories, read deeply. There's a lot of attention, a lot of care to these stories. They're not just written in one, in one draft. It takes a lot of effort to write something this amazing. Um, and it causes us to think about what, what makes one good. How, to, how, does, how do you keep to the straight and narrow? How do you keep yourself from being a hypocrite? Um, so there's a lot here to talk about. And I hope you enjoy this and take care. And please subscribe to my station. Also, I'm also on Spotify um, and Twitter and et cetera, et cetera. I would love for you to subscribe to my channel. I have lots of different episodes, lots of different series. It's not just uh, all on composition and rhetoric. And take care. Hopefully you enjoyed this video. Um, any questions, let me know. Thank you for watching.